change our lives on earth, Lord, that we would look to the things that are unseen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Oh, thank you, Luke, and the rest of the team who leads us in worship through song. What beautiful lyrics, what beautiful songs, what beautiful meditations to think through. I told Luke uh, last Sunday, just pick all songs that are basically the greatest hits from the Revelation sermon series. Whatever stood out to you and to others that encouraged them as we walked through this amazing book, sing those songs. So we've got Mansions of Glory, we've got Endless Delight, we've got Come What May, whatever, whatever would befall us, it just quickens our journey home. Beautiful songs uh, to lead our heart into a meditation in Revelation chapter 1. If you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you for the last time in probably a while to turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. It was on September 8th, 2019 that we began our study in this book. We had just finished up a sermon series, for those of you who are with us, uh, we finished up a sermon series through Judges and Ruth. And uh, typically at CBC, we try to flip back and forth between a New Testament book and then an Old Testament book and study back and forth between the Testaments. And so we wanted to go to the New Testament. And I thought, what's the New Testament equivalent of Judges and Ruth? Judges and Ruth, this incredibly chaotic, messy, destructive, disaster, massacres. It's just terrible circumstance after terrible circumstance, agony and suffering after agony and suffering. And then it leads to hope in the book of Ruth. And I thought, what's the counterpart to that? It's the book of Revelation, right? Just disaster after disaster that finally leads to hope and to glory. So we began studying in September of 2019. And it just so happened that we had finished chapter 3. You remember, chapter 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus himself is speaking to these seven churches. And we had just finished looking at a very deep, in-depth meditation on those seven letters. On March 8th, 2020, we wrapped up chapter 3, and the next Sunday we were going to go into chapter 4, which is that throne room of heaven, that scene that's majestic and glorious and beautiful, filled with singing, filled with praises, filled with majesty. And we all went home. (laughs) We never would have expected or anticipated what happened in March 2020. We had studied through the first three chapters of Revelation, but then we went online And we took a break. I felt that it was appropriate to do a study in the scriptures on fear, on anxiety, on hope. And then as we saw people, even in our own church, losing loved ones, I wanted to walk through what it means biblically to lament. That's a category that I think in modern American evangelicalism, we've lost an understanding of soberly lamenting before the Lord. And so I thought, let's do that through the book of Habakkuk. So we went... Through the book of Habakkuk, we did a sermon series through that book, and then we did a sermon series through another minor prophet, uh, Jonah. We spent time studying the Trinity, studying the love that God has within himself. We spent time looking at the Passion Week out here on the senior patio. You remember those days? Windy, noisy. Sometimes I would just have to stop talking as a fire engine would go by super loud. And then finally we were able to go back inside when Heritage allowed us to go back into the library. January 31st, 2021. So we took a big break, almost a year. And on January 21st, 2021, we dove back into Revelation chapter 4. And it was the most appropriate chapter to be in. As we stared together with one voice in the throne room of heaven, singing praises to God. It was amazing. So from September 8th, 2019... To today, with a little bit of a gap in there, we've been studying the book of Revelation. 70 sermons total. And what I want to do this morning, if you're a visitor with us this morning, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do. Normally we just go through a section of scripture, we read it, we preach through it, we make application to our lives. And what I want to do is I want to take the whole of the book of Revelation. What we do at the very beginning of every sermon series is we do something that 
in theology we would call prolegomena. Prolegomena comes from two Greek words that turn into one Latin word, means before you say. So before we dive in to see what the scriptures say, let's do a little study of why we're even studying it. Before we say what we want to say, let's figure out why we're even going to this. So we did some prolegomena before we dove into the book of Revelation. And what I want us to do is maybe we could call it post-legomena. After we've seen what this book has said, I want to go back and I want to ask the question, really three main questions that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, why did we study this book? Why should you study this book? Why should you read this book? We're not done with this book. It's in the Bible and we'll be studying this book and we'll be studying the Bible as a whole for all of eternity. So why is this in this book? Why is this necessary? Why is Revelation a part of the canon of Scripture? And why would you and I do well to keep on reading and keep on studying. Secondly, I want to do just one last flyby, a big picture view of what we have studied. So we saw why we studied, and now I want to ask what did we study, and just see the entirety of Revelation in one fell swoop. And then finally, it is Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and I believe there is a perfectly appropriate connection that we will see from the book of Revelation to Palm Sunday. So number one, why did we study? Number two, what did we study? And number three, how did it connect? How does it connect us to our celebration of the triumphal entry today? Let's just read Revelation chapter one, verses one through three. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his slave John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed or obey or do the things which are written in it. Because the time is near. Father, we thank you for the gift. The gift of being together. The gift of gathering around your word of praying every Lord's Day that you would open our eyes to see what we need to see. What a gift to have hungry hearts that want to open the word and hear you address us and be changed. Not just grow in some intellectual head knowledge, but to grow in our heart affections for Christ. That's what we've wanted to do from day one of the church plant. That's what we've wanted to do as we've been studying through Revelation. It can get so heady, it can get so academic, and I pray that you would again recalibrate our focus in our final message through this amazing book. As we've already wrapped up the section in chapter 22, those last few verses, now we get to zoom out and view it as a whole. God, help us to do that in a way that would submit ourselves to this book, submit ourselves to what it teaches, and in doing so, submit ourselves to you. So we do pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we'd behold wonderful things from your law. We do ask that you would grant that precious gift of illumination, that we would see clearly what we need to see, and that we would not remain unaffected, but that we'd be changed. Do that by the power of your word. Do that by the power of your spirit. Do that by your grace alone. We don't deserve it. We could do nothing to earn that taking effect in our lives. Do it because you are gracious. We come poor in spirit. We come broken. We come needy. Now please fill us up. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, question number one. Why did we study the book of Revelation? Why did we study the book of Revelation? Again, if you were here at the very beginning of our time when we studied this book, these seven points will be a review for you. If you were not here when we began, this is going to be a helpful uh, introduction to why you should continue to study and continue to read. But if, if you were here at the very beginning and this is review, number one, I'm guessing you forgot it because I did. And number two, my guess is as you continue to study through the book of Revelation, you need to go back to these reasons why this book is here, why you would do well to study. So these seven reasons are reasons for why we should always be reading the book of Revelation. Number one, Revelation's for our benefit. Revelation is for our benefit. That's what it says in verse three. 
Blessed is he. You are blessed if you read, if you hear, and if you do the things that are in this book. So you're blessed. Chapter 22, verse 27. It ends. The book ends with a blessing. So it opens with a blessing. It ends with a blessing. Book ended with blessings. It's for our benefit. Revelation is for you. It's written for you. Number two, we can understand this book. We can understand Revelation. This is why I wanted to study it from the beginning because I hoped to make it a little bit more clear in our minds and in our hearts. When we think of Revelation, we just think of no one can understand that book. It's not meant to be mystical. It's not meant to be hidden. It's not apocryphon or apocryphal. It's not hidden or covered or cloudy. It's apocalypsis. That's the literal word, the Greek word in verse 1, the revelation. It's unveiling. It's unfolding. It's apocalypsis. So it's not meant to be hidden. It's an unveiling. It's a revealing. And yes, there is territory that's unfamiliar to us as we dove into this book. But it's not territory that is so difficult you can't understand it. In fact, we've said multiple times, if you understand the Old Testament, Revelation makes total sense. It's using images from the Old Testament. It's using language from the Old Testament. It's totally Old Testament based. So we had the Old Testament as our control guide, as the system, the lens with which we understood the book of Revelation. And it clearly opened up for us. One example that we went through was the locust, right? The locust with the human faces, the lion's teeth, the tails like scorpions. If we come at it from our vantage point, from a 21st century understanding of this has to be from our lens backwards to the Old Testament, then we'd come up with some crazy ideas like those must be cobra helicopters or some form of crazy Armageddon warfare back, you know. That's not at all what this is saying. This, it's Old Testament. So what did the book of Joel, how did the book of Joel describe the invasion of an army. It was the, the massive amount of locusts coming into the land and destroying them. So it's this massive army. You can understand this book. And we tried to stay as far away from newspaper exegesis or headline hermeneutics. We're not going back into this book to go, well, what's the current events and how does that apply? In a, no, we're not doing that. It has many awesome genres inside of it. This book is beautiful. It moves back and forth. It has epistles. It's a letter. It has many letters in it. it. Just like every letter, it has an occasion for writing. So there's an occasion for Jesus writing these things. And that means that any interpretation of the book of Revelation that necessitates a 21st century perspective is almost assuredly wrong. The original recipients would have understood this book clearly, perfectly. They would have understood it. So it can never mean to us what it never meant to them. It's prophecy, it's poetry, it's, it's just a beautiful book. And so I pray that over the course of our study, you would have seen that you can understand Revelation. And there are still question marks about how this will come about, about when it will happen for sure. Those are always going to be there. But what the specifics are, are clear. So number one, Revelation's for our benefits written for us. Number two, we can understand it. Number three, Revelation reminds us that there is no middle ground. Revelation reminds us that there is no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no fuzziness, no ambiguity. There's light and darkness, life and death. That's it. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and there is the lake of fire for all of eternity. Those are the only two options in a place in time where our culture allows pluralism to reign and to rule over everything. We need this book. We live in a day and age where the only thing that is socially unacceptable is to declare that there are things that are socially unacceptable. We need a book here that will help us to navigate through that, to be able to clearly say there is a right and a wrong, there is a heaven and a hell, and you're either destined for one or the other, and those are the only options. This should in turn, motivate our faithfulness in evangelism. I pray that this book, as we have gone through it, would have sobered our understanding to bring us to a place where we are unashamed of the gospel and we are proclaiming Jesus Christ to our friends in the world around us because they are currently destined for hell. They're on their way. And many of them don't even know it. I pray that this book would have sobered our understanding. I, I don't know about you, I love reading biographies of Christian 
pastors, missionaries, people that have gone before us, I love reading them because it just reminds me how much of a wimp I am. I go through them and I read them and I realize, man, I was complaining yesterday about like stubbing my toe or having like a little uh, hangnail that started to bleed a little bit. And these people gave their lives and all of these incredible sacrifices because they believed the gospel and they took the gospel to the nations around them. One such individual, Adoniram Judson, who I would encourage you all to read about him, missionary to Burma or otherwise known as Myanmar, in the early 1800s, as he was preparing to go to bring the gospel to a foreign nation that had never known, a foreign country, a foreign people group that had never heard of the gospel, he knew that it was going to be uh, potentially life-threatening, and he was uh, dating a a girl and wanted to marry her, and so he wrote this. Listen to what he says to his future father-in-law. You know, Men, if you've asked permission for your future father-in-law's permission to give the daughter's hand in marriage, if you've had that conversation, I guarantee you none of us have had that conversation like this. Okay, listen to this. Adoniram Judson says this. I have to now ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her? And died for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this. In hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory. With the crown of righteousness. Brightened with the acclamations of praise. Which shall redound to her savior from heathens. Saved through her means from eternal, well, from eternal hell and despair. Can you consent to do that? And I think about being a dad, if somebody ever asked me that of my daughter, part of me would say, I never want to talk to you again. (laughs) Don't ever show your face here. It'll be bad consequences if you do. At the same time, there is nothing I would want more for my kids, for my daughter to proclaim Christ, even if it means her death. There's nothing that I would want more than for her to take the gospel to the people who have never heard. Adoniram Judson's father-in-law said, she's old enough to decide, don't ask me, ask her. And she said this, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. She's writing this to one of her friends named Lydia. She said, yes, Lydia, I have come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affections to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. If you know that there's no middle ground, it will make you do things like that. It will make you say things like that. And I pray that our study through the book of Revelation would have brought you to a place where you would have seen there's no middle ground. It's heaven or hell. It's serious. Souls are at stake. And it would have produced in you a a fervent desire to share Christ. Number four, fourth reason why we studied this book, Revelation gives encouragement and exhortation for a church that is under attack. Revelation gives encouragement and exhortation for a church that's under attack. Again, we can't understand what this book means until we understand what it meant to the original recipients, and to the original recipients, this book was life-giving, hope-giving, beautiful, glorious content. It's written to a church that was under attack, under physical persecution, under the attack of religious compromise, under the threat of materialistic seduction, very similar to even where we are today as a church. They were being attacked from every angle. And this book reminds us that there is coming a day when those attacks end. You know how the Bible says uh, the Lord will descend with a shout? I had somebody ask me one time, what's he shouting? I don't think it's him shouting. I think it's us shouting praises. But I entertained the question. 
What's he going to shout? What would Jesus shout? Think about that question. If Jesus is going to shout one thing as he's riding back on the white horse to come and get us, what would he shout? I said, I think he might shout, enough. Enough. I see my bride. She has made herself ready. She's been purified by my blood. I see my bride ready, and I see her under attack. And I'm stepping in and I'm saying, no more. Enough. Come home. I pray that this study through Revelation would have encouraged your hearts as we are a church that is definitely under the threat of religious compromise and materialistic seduction, but definitely coming in the future days and years, potentially physical persecution itself. Number five, Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. We study this book to kind of get our eyes off of ourselves. There's so much gravitas filled in this book. It's filled with this sober-minded understanding of who God is and the cosmic plan that he has for the universe. The word throne appears 34 times in this book. God is on his throne. He is king. And there is no maverick molecule in the universe. This book reminds us to look past the obvious, look past the present, get beyond it all, that there's more than meets the eye, that God is behind everything that's happening. And he, as Martin Luther wrote in the hymn that he penned, he is the one who will win the battle. He must win the battle. Lo, the doom of the devil is sure. And he must win. Christ must win the battle. I pray that our study would have enabled us all to just feel small. It's good to feel small in the grand scheme of God's amazing design. Number six, Revelation encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God, to reflect on our own worship of God. There's more singing in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible except for the Psalms. All through this book are scenes of singing. There's songs in heaven. There's songs that have a lot of words in heaven. And they're all about God, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all that they have done. Three main themes emerged from those songs. Number one, God is creator. Number two, God is savior. And number three, God is judge. But what we've seen time and time again as we studied these songs is that no one singing these songs is indifferent as they sing. No one's indifferent. They're all engaged, falling down before the Lamb. They're all engaged. Why? Because indifferent people to the glory of Jesus aren't in heaven. That's why. So all in heaven, we just see people with passion and fervor, and they cannot get beyond the reality of the love that God has for them. And different people don't understand that. Yeah, take it or leave it. Jesus is just, yeah, so-so, kind of cool, whatever. I don't think that indifferent people would enjoy heaven. Revelation helped us to set aside trivial issues that come up in worship. I don't like drums. They're too loud. I don't like the electric guitar. I don't like this. I wish it were that. I, I wish we had this instrument. We set it all aside. And it drove us to the two most pressing issues when it comes to worship through song. Content of our songs and passion as we sing. That's the, those are the two most important issues as we sing. No emotional empty-headedness and no intellectual empty-heartedness, but a beautiful combination of content and passion as we sing. I pray that our study in this book would have encouraged you and helped inform your worship through song. Finally, number seven, so all of these, I'll list them out for you one more time. Revelation is for our benefit, number one. It's written for you. Number two, we can understand it. Number three, it reminds us there's no middle ground. Number four, it gives encouragement and exhortation for a church that's under attack. Number five, Revelation provides a perspective that is cosmic and transcendent. Number six, Revelation encourages us to reflect on our own worship of God. And finally, number seven, the seventh reason why we studied this book, Revelation reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. Revelation reveals, this book is an unveiling, it reveals the glorious culmination of God's redemptive story. We've talked about this several times at our church, the kind of fourfold uh, redemptive storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, 
restoration, creation. God makes the world that is good. We fall into sin. And then God has to redeem us out of our sin. And then he has promised that he's going to make all things new. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible portray a perfect universe. Satan enters the storyline of the Bible in chapter 3 of the Bible. And Satan exits the Bible in the third chapter from the end of the Bible. It's a perfect bookend. You can't miss the Genesis imagery in the last two chapters of Revelation. There's a new garden. There's no more curse. God is dwelling with his people. There's a tree of life. John is thinking about Eden. He's tying up the whole story and saying, this is how it all ends. We know where it began. We know the middle and the climax, but this is how it all ends. Adam was supposed to tend the garden, walk and talk with God, enjoy that intimacy forever and ever. He failed but what he failed to do, Christ did. And he will finally do when he makes all things new. Paradise lost to paradise regained. And the Garden of Eden, on its best day, could only scratch the surface of the beauty and the blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. That's the why. Why did we spend 70 sermons walking through the book of Revelation. Those seven reasons and so many more are the why. Number two, I want to ask the question, what did we study? What did we study? Now, you could go back and listen to all 70 sermons, but what I want to do is I want to bring all of these sermons, the whole series together, and do a fly-by jet tour through this book. So if you're in Revelation chapter 1, let's just look at some of the headings and you can remember where we were. This is kind of just one last look through this book. Chapter 1, the book opens with John, exiled on the island of Patmos, seeing the risen Christ, risen from the dead, verses 12 through 20. And in verse 19, if you go to chapter 1, verse 19, we're given a threefold outline of the book. Therefore, Jesus says, write the things which you have seen, that's point number one, the things which are, that's point number two, and the things which will take place after these things. So we've got what you've seen, what is, and what's going to be. So the things which you have seen, that's Christ in all of his glory. The things which are, that's chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, you remember those seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor following that exact pattern of the coastal, uh, postal route going along the coast. That whole system, it's not seven types of churches it's seven literal churches and yes we see all sorts of problems in those churches but it's seven real churches the church in Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia and Laodicea and Jesus himself addresses those churches so that's the things which are and then we move from earth to heaven in chapter four and five chapter four and five once we finish chapter three chapter two and three are all to those churches the seven churches and to the church uh, ultimately through those churches to us as a church. But once you get to chapter 4, you don't ever see the church ever again until chap chapter 22. You never see the church again. Because now we're going to focus on a different time, a different group, a different purpose. Chapter 4 and 5, from earth to heaven, we see the throne room of God, beautiful vision of the throne room, the holiness of God on display in chapter 4 and 5. It's so clear in chapter 4 that no one is worthy to take the scroll and open it. And that's why chapter 5, John is weeping and crying. Nobody can open the scroll. There's a scroll, and that scroll has not only the title deed to the earth and the reclamation of the earth, but also uh, the entirety of all human history. If human history is going to have an ending that's good, that scroll needs to be opened. And John sees it and says, is anybody worthy to open this? And the angel says, no one can open that scroll. And so he weeps. And then he turns and he sees that lamb-like lion and that lion-like lamb standing, though he had been slain, slaughtered, sphagizomai. His throat had been cut. He had been bled out. He had died. But he's alive. And he's standing. And in chapter 5, it says that he holds those keys of death he is the one who has the worth and the honor and the value and the glory who accomplished all that was necessary in order to unfold that scroll, to break the seals and to enact the final plan of all redemptive history to bring peace to the earth, to bring hope to the earth, to bring salvation to his people and redemption for those who trust in him. 
So, because of the cross, because Jesus is the victor, we can now move on to the future with hope. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to be wondering or worried. We move on with hope. So we have the things which you have seen. That's Jesus. Uh, John in chapter 1, you've seen Jesus. You've seen him write those things. The things which are. It's really chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5. And then the things which will be. So chapter 1, verse 19 gives us that beautiful outline. Now the things which will be. And this is chapter 6. So if you're in chapter 6, you can see it says the first seal. If you're looking at some headlines in your Bible, there are some of those little titles. Now we move to the future. This is not happening now. This will happen. The things which are yet to come. Jesus begins opening those seven seals. And in doing so, he begins what we would call Daniel's 70th week that we have studied in Daniel chapter 9. This is the final period of seven years of all of human history where God has promised to work a plan ultimately to bring about salvation for ethnic Israel. That's the purpose of Daniel's 70th week. Bring about salvation for ethnic Israel who at this point rejects their Messiah. The gospel has been given to the Gentiles, to the world. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, He's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So it's supposed to go to Israel, to God's chosen people, who are still God's chosen people. They have rejected him now, but Paul will say in the book of Romans, that rejection is by no means a terminal rejection. It doesn't end here, and God has moved on and replaced them with the church. No, God has a plan for the church, but he still has a plan for his people, ethnic Israel. And that plan will come to its fruition and culmination in these last seven years of human history in Daniel's 70th week. So Jesus begins opening the, the scroll with those seven seals. And there's just devastation. There's martyrs. There's death. There's destruction. And so chapter 7, to ensure the salvation of ethnic Israel, God seals 144,000 Jewish men, 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes. So he seals them. And in doing so, he promises that they are not going to die in the period of tribulation, even though the Antichrist is going to be going after all of them, Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus alike. They're going to be uh, slaughtered. They're going to be destroyed. But God says, I will spare 144,000 and with them any that they would be helping bring to Christ. There are a series of three judgments that we see in the book of Revelation. Seals, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And the first seals end in chapter 8, which leads us into the trumpets. More devastating judgments. Each series of seven uh, judgments get worse and worse and worse. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, the trumpet judgments, the devastation just is carnage. And it's not even the worst. Chapter 10 gives us a little bit of a reprieve. An angel commands John to take a scroll and eat it. It's sweet, but it's bitter. It's sweet because he knows human history is about to end and Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom with his people and evil will be no more. But it's bitter because since evil will be no more, there will no longer be a chance for anyone who is rejecting Jesus to repent, to turn. We're introduced to two witnesses in chapter 11. Chapter 11 describes the testimony of these two amazing individuals taking the gospel uh, to the world, but specifically to their brothers and sisters in ethnic Israel. They are killed by the Antichrist. We meet the Antichrist in chapter 11. They're killed by the beast that comes out of the abyss. Three days later, they're raised from the dead. They ascend into heaven. And we have to ask the question. I think the question that ends chapter 11 is why is the Antichrist, empowered by the devil so angry at the Jews. He just keeps going after them. He tries to kill them. He tries to destroy them off the face of the earth. Why? And chapter 12 is the answer to that. Chapter 12 goes all the way back to when Satan fell and he took a third of the angels with him. And those would be fallen angels or demons. And he knew in the garden, Genesis 3.15, the first pronouncement of the gospel, the devil knew there is a day coming when the seed of the woman will crush my head. So if I can destroy the seed of the woman, then there's no way I get destroyed, and that promise won't come true. So, chapter 12 tells us that he was always trying to kill 
The Jewish people, I mean, all the way back, he, he did that in chapter 4. Cain kills Abel. Why? Because if we can get them to die, we're good. The, the, the Nephilim are brought in in this strange, chapter 6 of Genesis, this strange race of demonic, half-human, half-demonic people, these weird people. Why is the devil doing that? Because if he can get humanity as a whole to no longer exist, then the promise of the gospel cannot be fulfilled. He tries that in the book of Esther to eradicate all of the Jews as, as powerfully as he can. And God steps in through Esther and Mordecai. And so chapter 12 tells us that he was waiting there. He was waiting there trying to kill baby Jesus when Jesus was born. You remember how he did that. Through Herod, right? Kill all the male babies. He's been trying forever. And when he realized there's no way I can kill Jesus, when he didn't get to Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross, crushed his head, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and Satan said, well, I can't get to him, but I can get to all of those who relate to him. So now I can kill as many in ethnic Israel as possible, and I can kill as many of Christ's followers as possible. That's why he's so angry. That's what chapter 12 tells us. And that's why chapter 12 moves to the, the reality of this Antichrist. I'm going to, Satan is saying, I'm going to set up my Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word for the Old Testament word Messiah. My anointed one, my king. I'm going to set up my king. So chapter 13, we are told about the Antichrist. We're told about the false prophet, this unholy trinity of the devil, the false prophet and the Antichrist, all working together to bring as many people away from Jesus as possible. And so they, they do uh, so much persecution, so, so much suffering that happens. That we get to the end of chapter 13 and think there's no way whatsoever that anybody's going to survive this. You don't take the mark of the beast. You don't have any ability to trade in commerce and things like that. There's no way we're going to survive this. That's why chapter 14 opens with 144,000. The ones that were promised in chapter 7, they're still alive. They're still standing. In fact, this takes us all the way to the millennial kingdom. It's a, it's a future prophecy saying they're going to make it. It looks like everybody's going to be destroyed by the Antichrist in chapter 13. But chapter 14 says no. People are going to make it. People are going to make it to the end. Spared, sealed, saved, secured. Making it through the Great Tribulation. Chapter 15. Chapter 14 ends with a destructive understanding of the wrath of God that's going to come against those who do not make it to the end. Who do not love Christ. Who do not follow him. We have the end of Chapter 14, dealing with God's wrath being poured out on sinful mankind who is not trusting in him. And so chapter 15 opens up with a question. After chapter 14 ends, where we see the destructive judgment of God against sinful humanity, we'd be tempted to ask the question, is God just? Is he fair? Is it right for him to bring such devastation, such destructive judgment? And chapter 15 answers that question. God is holy, God is righteous, they sinned against their creator. It is absolutely just. And so, so chapter 15 moves us into chapter 16 after we have gotten confirmation that God is holy and just in everything that he's doing. Chapter 16, the bold judgments are thrown out onto the world. And it is destruction like no one's ever seen. You remember the bold judgment? It's this rapid fire devastation. It's destruction that no one has ever seen before. And that, again, we ask the question as we get to the end of chapter 16, and I love how the Bible does this. We get to the end of chapter 16 and we're wondering what on earth was so bad that that had to happen? That's what chapter 17 and 18 answers. Chapter 17 and 18 answers that question. We're informed of the economic and religious system of Babylon and how awful they were, how awful that religious system was, how awful that economic system was, just constantly trying to take people away from Christ in any way that they could. So yes, they're worthy and deserving of the judgment that's mentioned in chapter 16. That's why in chapter 19, after 17 and 18 gives us this description, chapter 19, all of heaven is rejoicing that Jesus is coming back to judge and to save. He's coming back. Chapter 19, Christ does come back. Battle of Armageddon defeats his enemies. Chapter 20, we enter into the millennial kingdom, which finally, we've been waiting since Genesis 12 for the promises that God gave to Abraham and to his seed. We've been waiting for those promises to happen. And finally, we have a kingdom. The, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all these covenants are finally 
of finding their culmination in the millennial kingdom, this period of a thousand years where Jesus himself rules and reigns on the earth as king. Israel is brought in, following their savior, believing in Christ. Uh, for a thousand years, the population grows. Satan is bound for those thousand years. He's released at the end of those thousand years. He tries to bring about a rebellion. It's squished instantly by God. And then at the end of chapter 20, we have the great white throne judgment. Heaven and earth flee away. Every single non-believer stands before God on their own, and they have to give an account. The books of their life, of their actions, their deeds, their thoughts, their words, their attitudes, and their emotions are open before God, and God himself addresses every single one. They have to give an account, and every single one will say that they are guilty. And God will send them into everlasting punishment. Chapter 21 and 22 then tells a different story for believers. We get to enjoy paradise regained, New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, perfection, glorification, worship of God, enjoyment with the saints forever, forever and ever. So, it's fast, but that's the book of Revelation. The things which you've seen, Jesus in his glorification, the things which are, those two chapters of the seven churches and the throne room of heaven, and the things which will be, chapter 6 to 22. And we see beautiful motivation for why what is happening is actually happening. We see all sorts of different reasons for why this book is written out the way that it is. And it ends with a promise. Three times in chapter 22, we are told by Christ himself, I'm coming back. I'm coming quickly. Be ready, be prepared, because I'm coming back. So, why did we study this book? What was in the book that we studied? And finally, briefly, number three. What does this all have to do with Palm Sunday? Okay, what does this all have to do with Palm Sunday? Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is the feast of dedication. We are in the last week of the life of Christ before he is, uh, we're, we're going to be in the last week of the life of Christ before he is killed, celebrating uh, Palm Sunday. But here we are at the feast of dedication, which is early December. So chronologically, December A.D. 32 is John chapter 10. December A.D. 32. Jesus is going to die on April 3rd, 33 A.D. So we're about four months away from the death of Christ. So John chapter 10, four months away. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now when he says this, this is absolutely angering. This is a blasphemous statement that the religious leaders here and those following them. So verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Because he declares himself equal with God. Here's a man. We do not believe that he's God. Here's a man that's claiming to be God. They pick up stones to stone him. Again, people make the argument, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God in the Bible. You believe that he's God? Well, that's kind of crazy because he never claimed to be God. Here's a perfect place you could go to. If Jesus was not claiming to be God, he would say, whoa, 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 time out, time out. Why are you picking up stones? What did I say? What did I say? Everybody says, you're making yourself out to be God. You're saying you're equal with the Father. You claim to be God. And he would have said, time out. I miscommunicated. My bad. Please forgive me. This is actually what I was trying to say because I'm not God. Please don't throw rocks at my face. That's what he would have said. But instead, he doubles down on it. You're, you're right. I am God, and now I need to leave because I can't die this way. So they pick up stones to stone him, and he leaves. Verse 39. They were seeking again to seize him, but he eludes their grasp. And he goes away beyond the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist was first baptizing, and he stayed there. This is a place called Perea. So in Perea... Jesus is in hiding away from the Jews that are trying to kill him, from the religious leaders that are trying to kill him. He's a wanted man. And everyone who follows him is in danger. He goes away to Perea. And in Perea, we see in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, something remarkable that happens. You can write down Luke 13 through 19 fits in between John 10 and John 11. So John 10 ends... And then John just goes straight to the raising of Lazarus. Jesus is in Perea 
when Lazarus's servants are sent to say, Jesus, can you please come heal him? So John just moves straight over to the raising of Lazarus. Luke picks up the narrative in Perea. So turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Jesus is in Perea, beyond the Jordan. We don't know how long he stayed there, but it would appear to be about a month and a half. So somewhere in January or February of AD 33. He's going to die in April of 33. And the Pharisees, because they hate him and they want to kill him, the Pharisees are trying to get through a ploy, through a means of manipulation to get Jesus to move from Perea back into Jerusalem. Verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached him, saying, go away, leave here, don't stay in Perea, Herod wants to kill you, go back to Jerusalem, you'll be safe there. That's a lie. Jesus says to them, well, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, I perform cures today, and tomorrow on the third day I reach my goal. I'm perfected. I finish what I've been given by God to do. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So here's what he's saying in a nutshell. I'm not leaving now. I see through your lie. I'm not going back to Jerusalem, but don't worry, I'll go there eventually, and I will die there. You can't kill me here in Perea. I'm not leaving yet, but I will die in Jerusalem. That's his prophecy. And then he weeps over Jerusalem. Verse 30, 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. I wanted to do this, but you didn't want it. You rejected me. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, remember, we're months away from the triumphal entry. I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118, 26. You know that passage. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's not saying this is the day specifically, you know, Sunday, the Lord's day. This is the day the Lord has made. Yes, he made today for sure. But what that verse is saying, it's a messianic psalm of how the Messiah is going to show up and you welcome him in as king. So it's saying this day, the day of the triumphal entry, that's the day that God has made and you're going to rejoice. God's going to be welcomed in. Messiah's going to be welcomed in. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. The day of the triumphal entry, let's rejoice. You, you know that's why Jesus himself said, to the Pharisees during the triumphal entry. They say, tell your disciples to stop praising you. And he says, if I did that, the rocks would cry out. Why? Because on this day, it was prophesied. This is the day that God's made, and we're going to rejoice in it. You know that section in verse 25. Uh, Hoshana, save us now. What the people cry out on Palm Sunday. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a messianic psalm. This is a messianic title that's being given and Jesus says I'm here in Perea and in Perea I am going to go back to Jerusalem and the next time I enter Jerusalem it will be to the crowds of people saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord if you and I had been there we would have said you're crazy we just left Jerusalem with people with rocks in their hands trying to kill you we're in hiding. Jesus, don't you remember where we are? There's no way we're going back there to a warm reception of people saying, you're the Messiah. They want you dead. We would have said, there's no way that's going to happen. And here we are, celebrating Palm Sunday, that it happened. And you remember how it happened. He took that long way around the Sea of Galilee, around the Jordan River, going down over, taking this long, lengthy journey to gather disciples himself, to, to spare his own life, all that amazing stuff that we studied when we were going through the Passion Week narrative. And then he walks in to Jerusalem with the entirety of that city saying, will he show up? And the answer is yes. When's he going to be here? It's got to be Sunday. He's in Bethany. It's Friday, sundown. The next day, there's a Sabbath. He's not coming until Sunday. And they all go out on Sunday to visit him. And what do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you and I had been there, we would have said, there's no way this is happening. Jesus made it happen. One last passage. Matthew chapter 23. What does Palm Sunday have to do with the book of Revelation? Matthew 23 is Tuesday of the Passion Week, so now we're 
a few days into the Passion Week, the triumphal entry has already happened. Jesus is going to say the exact same thing that he said uh, in Perea, prophesying the triumphal entry, but he already did the triumphal entry. So this is Tuesday. This is after the triumphal entry. He says, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. But I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He said that a few months before the triumphal entry. And if we had been there, we would have said, you're crazy, that's not going to happen. And he made it happen. I think to the astounding, just mouth open gasps of his disciples. He said it. We should, we're finally three and a half years into his ministry. We start believing when he says something's going to happen, that it's going to happen. He says this on Tuesday. He's going to die on Friday. He's going to go back into heaven 40 days after he rises from the dead. And he's waiting there. And he has promised the next time that he goes to Jerusalem, which is the second coming of Christ, he's promised he's coming back to the sound of people saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We study Revelation and we might go, oh, I don't know how that's going to happen. Antichrist is ruling and reigning. You take the mark of the beast, you're going to die. Everyone's getting their head cut off. There's no way that's going to happen. And Jesus said, hey, just like I made Palm Sunday happen, I'm going to make the second coming happen. Where ethnic Israel will welcome me in as Messiah. Where salvation will be given on a scale that you and I would not even begin to comprehend right now. So, why did we study this book? So many amazing reasons. What's the content of this book? It is so glorious and filled with hope. Finally, how does it connect us to Palm Sunday? If he promised that it would happen one time, and it did, he's promising it's going to happen again. And that's a money-back guarantee. He's coming back. Brothers and sisters, he's coming back. Let's long for his return together. Father, we thank you so much for your love, your kindness. We thank you for the amazing gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to glory in him now as we consider all that he has promised for us that is yet to come. The hope that we have. The hope we have in Jesus. Ignite in our hearts a passion for Christ that would never, ever go away. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand with us if you would.